before I begin, just a quick thing. Um, obviously, Pastor Stephen is, is praying when he's praying. He's not talking to you. He's talking to the Lord. I hope you guys are taking note of the things that you should be praying for and how you should be praying. I know everyone prays a little bit differently, but Pastor Stephen is honestly instructing us in, in what to be praying for in the church and how to pray each Lord's Day. I just want to put that in your ear so that you're thinking through those things. Remember the things that he's prayed for. Write them down if you need to and, and join us corporately in prayer throughout the week for those, those needs. Um, but any, anyhow, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. That's where we're going to start this morning. We are in the third week of a six-week series on the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. And today our focus will be on the Sabbath in the prophets, particularly Isaiah. Um, thus far in this series, we, we've seen this, that the Sabbath began at creation, Genesis chapter 2. We've seen that the Sabbath is a moral law, rather, or, or the command to keep the Sabbath is a moral law that did not go away with the end of the Old Covenant. And now, in order to reinforce the truth that there is a Sabbath for Christians, I want us to consider what the prophets of the Old Testament had to say about the Sabbath. If you know your Old Testament very well, you know that the prophets spoke about the Sabbath often. All the major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they all speak of the Sabbath, usually about how the day was being broken and profaned and how God was going to pour out his wrath upon the people because of it. That's worthy uh, of contemplating on, uh, rather thinking on. Um, God spoke many words to his people through the prophets about the Sabbath, but this morning I want to consider a couple of happier uh, and, and, and hopefully instructive portions of prophecy about the Sabbath. In particular, I want to consider chapters 56 and 58 of Isaiah's prophecy. Um, this morning, I, I will not dive deeply into every detail in these two chapters, uh, since there's obviously so much scripture to be covered. Um, instead, my aim is to give a broad, sweeping exposition of each text so that you can see the major themes that our Lord is getting at. And by doing so, I, I hope to show you that the Sabbath is for us today and that God promises great blessings to those who keep the day holy. So here's my outline for this morning. First, I want us to look at Isaiah 58 and consider Sabbath keeping as a mark of true religion. Then we will turn to Isaiah 56 to see Sabbath keeping prophesied for the new covenant age. And then we will turn back to Isaiah 58 verses 13 and 14 to see the promised blessings for Sabbath keepers. I hope to show you this morning that Sabbath keeping was not a mere external ceremonial show of religion, but as I've already said, is a mark of true religion. I hope to show you that the Sabbath is prophesied to continue on even after all the ceremonies of the old covenant had passed away. And I hope to show you something of God's grace and kindness that he promises for those uh, who obey his commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. Let me rephrase that a little bit. The grace of God to promise blessings for you doing simply what you should do. That's probably the better way to phrase it. I want to show you something of God's kindness to say, if you'll do what you should have been doing anyway, I will bless you. May God bless the preaching of his word and increase our love for him by it. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our triune God, we thank you for your word. It is our sure and certain guide in a world of uncertainty and change because it comes from you, the immutable, unchanging God. We ask now that you would help us to understand, believe, and cherish what you have revealed in Scripture. By the mighty working of the Spirit of God, teach us and grant us hearts warm to the truth. Cause us to behold your wisdom, your goodness, and your kindness in the Scriptures. Make us teachable and teach us. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Help us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As you all know by now, if you've been here for all three weeks or you've been following along, uh, many people claim that the Sabbath was a ceremonial law given only to the Jews, and therefore it is not binding on the Christian. I feel like I've, I've started almost every sermon with that. Um, you guys know that that's what many people believe, and I know that I addressed that error at length last week, uh, but I'd like to briefly address it again today from Isaiah uh, as a way to, to reinforce what I said in, in past weeks and also to kind of set the stage to dive more deeply into the Christian Sabbath from the prophets. Now, I think that Isaiah chapter 58 contradicts the idea that the Sabbath was a merely ceremonial law. And I say that because in this chapter, and we're going to read the whole chapter here in a second. In this chapter, external religious ceremonies like fasting, fasting with no heart behind it rather, are compared to true religion. And one of the marks of true religion is found in verses 13 and 14 that we just read. And what is that mark of true religion? The answer is Sabbath keeping. So I'll now read the entire chapter to you and then make some brief remarks so that you can hopefully understand more clearly what's being said. Isaiah chapter 58. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, 
to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can kind of see the context a little bit better now. In this chapter at the beginning, Isaiah is instructed to cry out against the sins of God's people. And what is that sin? If I could speak like a Puritan for a moment, it's the sin of hypocritical formalism. Formalism. That is, of having external forms of religion and ceremonies but not actually worshiping God. We see this accusation from the Lord in verses 1 through 5. There it's said that the people are fasting, but they're doing so with insincere hearts. They're trying to manipulate the Lord. If we don't eat, he has to answer us. That's how they think that this works. I think the Lord is using very sarcastic language in these opening verses. They seek the Lord daily. And delight to know his ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They engage in external forms of worship, pretending to delight in the Lord as if they were righteous. But in reality, they are wicked and hypocritical. And they ask in verse 3, they ask God, why have we fasted and you, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They're asking God, why don't you answer us? Why don't you care for us? We're fasting, but you don't do as we've asked. Don't you see that we're not eating? Why don't you do what we ask you? And the reason why God doesn't hear them is found in verses 3 and 4. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. They're obsessed with doing their will or their pleasure, as the text says. They're obsessed with doing their pleasure instead of God's. They oppress the poor and act wickedly and harm their neighbor instead of obeying the Lord. In verse 5, God says that this kind of fasting, this kind of religion, is not the kind of fast that he chooses. This is, this is really important. God is not looking for mere externals like bowing like a reed. What is that? Bowing your head? 
or sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Those are all external things that a person who does not love the Lord can do. God is saying, I want something more. Such merely external ceremony is unacceptable to the Lord. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So in this chapter, Isaiah is instructed to prophesy against merely external ceremonial ritual religion. God says that such religion is actually false religion. That's why he doesn't accept it. It's not true worship. There's no heart behind it. And so he hates it. Why? Because people who only practice ceremonial religion, who only practice the externals, are not truly loving and obeying God, but are only giving a show of religion. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about this kind of religion in 2 Timothy 3.5. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They keep external religion, but they don't have the power of it. Why? Because it's not in them. Know this. God hates formalism. I'm not saying that our worship should not be formal. Obviously, it's quite liturgical. But God hates formalism. God wants the heart, not just our external religious actions. And a brief, let me pause here. This is not the big, I know I'm preaching on the Sabbath, but I can't not say this. What a reminder for all of us here. Going through the outward motions of singing hymns and psalms, receiving baptism, coming to the Lord's table, fasting, reading scripture, all of that must have our hearts in it or it is nothing in the eyes of the Lord. Could we not just as easily substitute, Oh Lord, we've read the scriptures daily. Why don't you hear us? Well, that's an external thing. Now it can be internal. Just like fasting can be internal. God is not satisfied, though, with mere external things. But I want to be clear, these external things are good for us to do. They're even commanded by the Lord. But considered by themselves, external religious observances are not true religion. God must have the heart as well. God wants worship that is internal just as much as it is external. The external is actually supposed to show what's inside. God wants us to love him. God wants worship that changes how we live and does not terminate on the external things themselves. God wants worship that issues with us loving him and our neighbor more every day. Again, God is not satisfied with mere externals. Do not ever forget that. True religion is internal, and true religion will manifest itself in how we live and how we treat other people. And that's actually what Isaiah goes on to write. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. I'm pulling this out of Isaiah. In verses 6 and 7, God goes on to tell his people what true fasting looks like. But notice he doesn't mention fasting in what follows. So true fasting here stands for true religion. That's the parallel. God has talked about the kind of religious observance or fasting that he hates and that he rejects. But now, starting in verse 6, God talks about the kind of fasting or religion that he loves. The kind of religion that he accepts. And God tells us that the kind of religion he chooses is this. Loosening the bonds of wickedness, undoing burdens, helping the oppressed, sharing food with the hungry, helping the homeless and poor, clothing the naked and not refusing the needy. That 
is true religion. God loves this stuff. Why? Because this is the second table of the law. This is commandments 5 through 10. This is God's moral law coming to bear on how we live. This is loving your neighbor as you love yourself, which is the summary of the second table of the law. And this kind of love is true obedience to the Lord. Such obedience springs from a heart that loves God himself and wants to honor and please him. Show me someone who doesn't love their neighbor and I'll show you someone that does not love God. I'm not saying we can't struggle with these things and truly be Christians, but you show me someone who does not give a rip about their neighbor. I'll show you someone who is either in terrible sin and needs to repent or is a falsely professing Christian. True religion changes how we live. That's one of the themes here. Then in verses 8 through 12, back to the text now, verses 8 through 12, God goes on to describe and promise blessings for practicing true and acceptable religion in his eyes. Now, I want to be clear. You do not merit blessing from the Lord as if it's a one-for-one transaction. We are obligated to practice true religion, period. The fact that God ties blessings to our obedience shows you how gracious he is. Imagine if I told my daughter, when she's a little older, she's only three, if you go clean your room, I'll give you 20 bucks. I am a gracious father. She has to clean her room simply because I said so. I don't owe her 20 bucks, but if I tie a blessing to obedience, that just shows that I'm gracious. That's what we're seeing here. Not a works-based system, but God's grace toward his people. But in verses 8 through 12, God goes on to describe these blessings for practicing true religion. He will bless those who truly love and obey him. He says he'll give spiritual light and healing to them. I like this. His glory will be their rear guard. What does that mean? I'll protect you. He will hear and answer them when they cry out for help. He will guide them. He will make them spiritually healthy and strong. He says he'll make their bones strong. He will rebuild their ancient ruins. That is, he'll build up his people. Or possibly this is a reference to the rebuilt Jerusalem after exile. But the, the point is this. God will bless those who practice true religion and do not rely on mere externals, mere ceremonies. And notice also the if-then nature of verses 9 and 10. I hope you're following along in your Bible. Is it up there? Nope, it's not up there. Notice the if-then nature of verses 9 and 10. If they will practice true religion and not cling to mere ceremonies and rituals, then God will bless them. The principle is that God loves, honors, and owns true religion, but will always reject hypocritical ceremonial observances that have no heart in them. And then we come to verses 13 and 14. The same concept that is found in verses 8 through 12 is continued here. What is that theme? Blessing for true religion. Verses 13 and 14 is also an if-then statement like what has come before. So the same idea is present here. Verse 13 is therefore describing an exercise in true religion and not a mere ceremony or external observance like what was being condemned at the beginning of the chapter. And what is said in verse 13? If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. Sabbath keeping is mentioned in verse 13 and given the context of the whole chapter. Here's the conclusion. This means that that Sabbath keeping is a mark of true religion. Now there are many to be sure. There are many marks of true religion. This is not the only one. But according to God, it is nevertheless a real mark of true, heartfelt, internal religion. And God promises blessings in verse 14 for those who keep the day holy. We'll get into those later, Lord willing. Now, to those who would say, as I used to years ago, as many of you used to, as some of you still do now. To those who would say that the Sabbath was a mere ceremonial law for the Old Covenant, I must ask, Why does God count it as true religion then? Why is this a mark of true piety and righteousness and godliness? Again, this whole chapter has to do with true and false religion. It has to do with relying on external ceremonies and rituals versus true God-honoring, God-delighting obedience, religion that, that reveals hearts that love the Lord. And part of the category of true religion is Sabbath keeping. This teaches us, I can't get away from it, this teaches us that Sabbath keeping is no mere ceremonial law. It's a mark of true piety. Check this out. It's mentioned in the same section. It's just as much as a mark of true piety as helping the oppressed, feeding the hungry, caring for the needy, clothing the naked. Surely we believe that the other marks of true religion in this chapter are for Christians. So then it's reasonable to conclude that Sabbath keeping as a mark of true religion continues. Now I want to chase this a little bit. Why is Sabbath keeping a mark of true religion? Why? Well, it shows a dedication to the things of God and true delight in Him. And true delight in His Word. And true delight in His worship. Hear me out. Hear me out. As we lay down our ordinary labors and recreations, the things we would normally do, like on Saturday, as we lay down our ordinary work and recreation and devote the day entirely to the Lord as much as finite weak humans can do, we are, in a very practical way, demonstrating that He is supreme to us. As we say no to many things in the world in order to devote ourselves to heavenly things, we're showing that we prize God over everything. As we give ourselves over to worship the whole day, what we're doing is we're showing that our hearts are with God and that we long to be near to Him and that we long to spend time with Him. Hear me. Sabbath keeping is a real, in-your-face testimony to the world and to one another that we love God. It is really, oh, is your kid going to join the basketball league? Well, they play games on Sunday, so no. Why? Because I'm a Christian? Because that day belongs to the Lord? Really? Like, can't you just go to church and then he comes and plays? No, the day belongs to the Lord. What are you doing? You're drawing a line in the sand to those people and showing them the Lord is more important to me than basketball. Pastor Stephen has had many opportunities to talk to people about Christ as he put in a religious exemption form. As well as, as well as Austin McKnight did at the A plant. And people were saying, hey, you working this mandatory overtime on Sunday? Nope. <laughs> Why? Because it's the Sabbath, man. 
What is that? Well, let's talk about Christianity now. This is a real in-your-face testimony. Furthermore, keeping the Sabbath takes planning, preparation, and to some extent, sacrifice. You have to plan for, for the Sabbath day. You get your affairs in order. And so it shows that our whole week, check this out, this is beautiful. It shows that our whole week has been looking forward to meeting with the Lord. I did my shopping yesterday. Why? Because tomorrow belongs to the Lord. I cleaned my house up on Friday. Why? Because Sunday belongs to the Lord. We've been orienting the week around meeting with God. That's what Sabbath keeping points out. It shows that we truly delight and desire to be with him as much as we can. Brothers and sisters, this is no ceremonial issue. This is true religion. This reveals to some degree the state of our hearts. But maybe you're saying to yourself at this point, Okay, I I anticipate objections, right, because I have them, or I had them, rather. Okay, so Sabbath-keeping was a mark of true religion for the Jews. I hear you, Dave. That much is clear, but that does not mean anything to me as a Christian, does it? Just because it was a mark of true godliness in Isaiah, that doesn't necessarily mean that it still is today. Fair question, fair question. I think that you'll find Isaiah chapter 56 very interesting with regard to such a question. Turn there. Turn to Isaiah 56. I think you'll find this chapter interesting because I believe that Isaiah 56 speaks about Sabbath keeping during the New Covenant era. This was a game changer for me and Pastor Steve. It's actually because of this chapter, Pastor Steve told me, you have to preach about this. I was not going to preach this sermon. Stephen made me do it. Blame him. Uh, And here's the thing, if this chapter does speak about Sabbath keeping during the New Covenant era, that means that it continues to be a mark of true religion for us today. So what I want to do now is prove that Isaiah 56 is a prophecy about the New Covenant age and that it also talks about the Sabbath being kept at that time by God's people. But before we get to chapter 56, I want you to consider the context of chapter 56. I want you to consider where this chapter is situated within Isaiah's prophecy because this is important. So follow with me. Follow with me. First, it's good to mention that the whole section of Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 often looks forward to the Messianic age. That is the new covenant era. It seems to me as I read the book that Isaiah shifts between addressing problems of his day, the future return of the exiles, the coming of the Messiah, the work of the Messiah, the ramifications of the work of the Messiah, and even possibly the consummation of all things at the end of the world. So keeping that in mind, it's not a strange thing that certain chapters have to do with the New Covenant age. right? Actually, one of Isaiah's nicknames amongst the Puritans was the Evangelical Prophet because he spoke so much about the age of Christ and his covenant. Second thing, Let's consider now the more immediate context of Isaiah 56. You don't have to, but if you turn back a few chapters to chapter 53, you are in very familiar territory. Isaiah 53, probably one of the top five most famous chapters in the Old Testament. There we read of the atoning death and resurrection of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. We read of how he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
We read of how Christ was crushed. It was Yahweh's good plan to crush him and put him to grief. Why? That he might offer up himself as an offering for our guilt. We read how he suffered the wrath of God as a substitute for his sinful people in order to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. And then we read of how he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is the resurrection of Christ. He would die for us, but then he would see. With his own eyes, he would see and be satisfied over what he accomplished by his death. And and by doing all of this, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, he will make many to be accounted righteous. Though they are not righteous, I'm going to preach the gospel here for a moment. (laughs) Though they are not righteous but are sinners, they will be declared righteous by God because they have trusted in the one who died for their sins and was raised from the dead. This is the gospel. This chapter is about how Christ, the Messiah, would come and save sinners by his death and resurrection. Then in chapter 54, immediately after this chapter about the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus, we read of how God will enlarge Israel as a result of what Jesus has done. Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. It's getting real post mill up in here. Right? They will possess the nations. He says, make the tent bigger. Why do you need to make the tent bigger? Because you're about to expand. Israel needs to make bigger tents because God's people are about to grow in number in a huge way. Then in verse 10, God speaks of how he has made a covenant of peace with his people that will never be removed. This covenant is none other than the new covenant that Christ inaugurated in his blood at the cross. The new covenant gives peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans 5.1. And then we turn to chapter 55. In the opening verses of this chapter, we read that God beckons people to come and buy from him without price. This is a clear call to come to God and be saved by faith alone, apart from any merits that we could ever try to offer him. Come, buy from me without price. You don't have any money? That's fine. You don't have anything to offer me? That's fine. Just come. This is the call of the gospel. This is the call of the new covenant. Then in verse 3, we read of how God will make an everlasting covenant with his people, a covenant that is based on his love for King David. King David. This covenant is the new covenant that is the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel to send an eternal king to rule forever over God's people. And I guess who that king is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So again, the new covenant age is in view still. God then goes on in verses 12 and 13 to tell of how he will give peace and joy and gladness to his people. This is the gladness that's found in the Messiah. And then finally, we get to chapter 56. And the theme of the blessings that will come through Christ continues. I I want to now look at verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read them to you. Isaiah 56, 1 through 7. 
Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I love this passage, and you should too if you're not ethnically Jewish. In verses 1 and 2, God issues a call to those receiving this prophecy that they are to keep justice and do righteousness. And just real quick, the examples of doing righteousness and keeping justice are, one, keeping the Sabbath, and two, not doing any evil. That's the first and second table of the law, I think, being summarized right there. But anyhow, why should they be righteous? Why should the people receiving this prophecy be righteous? Because as verse 1 says, For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. What is that? The Messiah is coming soon. The new covenant age is very clearly in view. That's what's being prophesied about here in chapter 56. And again, that fits 53, 54, 55, 56. It's all coming together now. We're still talking about the same thing. Then in verses 3 through 7, the prophecy goes on to speak about foreigners, not the band. (laughs) Gentiles, Gentiles, foreigners, Gentiles, and eunuchs being made part of the people of God. God speaks of foreigners and eunuchs who have joined themselves to the Lord, who keep his Sabbaths, who choose the things that please him, who hold fast his covenant and love the name of the Lord. These are people who have come to know God and trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They have in their hearts, as Calvin said, I think it was, in their hearts, they have joined themselves to God. How? By faith in God's promises made through Jesus Christ. They've joined themselves to the Lord by faith. They love God. They hold fast to his covenant. What covenant would that be? The only covenant that's been mentioned. In the last five chapters, this is the new covenant. They say, I will not let go of the covenant that Christ mediates. I won't let him go. I grip it with everything that I have. I cherish God and what he's done for me in Christ. Again, this is the new covenant, the everlasting covenant that brings salvation to sinners. And God says that these Gentiles and eunuchs who hold fast his covenant, who have joined themselves to him, who love what he loves, they will never be separated from the people of God. Why? Because God himself has made them his people. (laughs) That's so good. 
Why don't you have to worry that you'll ever be separated from the people of God? Because he made you one of his people. Take that one with you. Don't worry. You won't be separated from his people. You are one of them. God actually goes so far to say that he will put a monument and name within his house, that is his temple, for the eunuch who loves him. And the foreigner, the Gentile, this is wild, will minister to God. What's it mean to minister? To do priestly duties. The Gentile will perform priestly functions to God. These are people who under the old covenant were not allowed to assemble with God's people or serve him in formal worship. But now they're numbered among the people of God. And these people will have their offerings and sacrifices accepted by God. Why? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's intention is to bring in the nations. Here's how this connects. His intention is to bring in the nations. That's why in chapter 54, he said, Israel, make bigger tents. Why? Because the Gentiles are coming. Make room. Make room. God is going to take people who were formerly outsiders and bring them into Israel. God is going to make outsiders into insiders by making them his covenant people alongside believing Jews. Check out verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God says he's going to gather Jew and Gentile together after his righteousness and salvation mentioned in verse 1. That is after Jesus comes. After Jesus comes, Jew and Gentile put together. That is the big theme of this passage. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what has happened under the new covenant. This is clearly talking about the time we're living in. Now, before I go any further, I want to prove, just in case any of you are, are, are looking for a loophole, because I, I do that when I'm, when I'm thinking through theology. I want to prove that this passage has to be about the New Covenant era. And I believe that it absolutely must be talking about the New Covenant because of two passages in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. And Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 56, we're told that the Gentiles are going to serve as ministers to God. But there's a problem. Numbers 18, verse 7 says, God is speaking to Aaron. He says, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Nobody but the sons of Aaron could minister to God. They were responsible for his altar. But now God speaks of a time when Gentiles will minister to him, and their sacrifices will be made on an altar and accepted to God. In Isaiah, second thing, in Isaiah 56, we're told that the eunuchs would have a name and a monument in God's house, that is his temple. But in Deuteronomy 23.1, we read, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord, uh, a.k.a. a eunuch. Eunuchs were not allowed to assemble with God's people, but now God speaks of a time when they will have a place and a name within his house. Though Gentiles and eunuchs were forbidden to do these things under the old covenant, there is no such prohibition under the new covenant. Either this passage is about the new covenant or the Bible contradicts itself. 
I'll let you decide which one you want to roll with. Clearly, this is talking about the new covenant. Under the new covenant, both Jews and Gentiles have been united into one covenant people under Christ. Speaking to the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. One people of God now exists, and that people is the church. The Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. The true Jews, Romans 2.28 and 29. The one olive tree that is the people of God, Romans 11.24. Isaiah is therefore prophesying about the new covenant age. And what does God say that these eunuchs and Gentiles who are made his people, what are they going to do at this time? Among other things, they will keep my Sabbaths, verse 4. And they will keep the Sabbath and not profane it, verse 6. Just as much as they will hold fast to his covenant, just as much as they will do righteousness, just as much as they will choose the things that please the Lord, they will keep his Sabbaths. So check this, during the time of the new covenant, when all the old covenant ceremonies are taken away because the substance of Christ has come, the Sabbath still remains. This means that the Sabbath is for us to keep under the new covenant and was not a mere shadow. It has substance to it. It's moral. Isaiah prophesied it. Now an objection can be raised to this. Some will say, But this is just Old Testament language describing New Testament realities. The text says they'll keep the Sabbath, sure, but it also mentions God's temple, ministering to him, that's priestly service, and offering burnt offerings and sacrifices on God's altars, or rather altar. And since we don't have or do any of those things anymore, we also don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. The only point to take away from this passage, some will say, is that the Gentiles will become God's people in Christ. And listen, that's a fair objection to make, right? We don't have an altar. We don't have a priesthood, right? We don't have any of that. So then we don't have a Sabbath, and and you're, you're reading too much into it. The big point is that the Gentiles are going to come in. Fair objection. Let me answer that. It is very true that this is Old Testament language describing New Testament realities. Super true. All the time of the Old Testament. We don't go to a literal temple anymore. We do not offer literal sacrifices on a literal altar anymore. And there is no more literal earthly priesthood. But my dear brothers and sisters, we do have a temple. We are all priests or ministers to God. And we do offer sacrifices. You say, oh, well, you're just playing with the text. No, 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 no. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church, not this building, but the people, the church is the new covenant temple where God dwells in each of its members. Each one of us, by God's grace, have been made priests to God so that we might offer him sacrifices. And hear me, we do offer sacrifices. Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and obedience. Hebrews 13, 5. Through him, Christ, 
Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Romans 12.1 very famously says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We have a temple. We are priests. Oh, dare I say it, the Gentiles have become ministers to the Lord. And we do offer up sacrifices. You say, where's the altar? I hope you know the altar. Jesus Christ is the altar. Notice all these passages talk about we offer up sacrifices through him. What did you do in the Old Testament? You offered up sacrifices on the altar by Christ and his sacrifice at the cross. Through our faith in him, sacrifices, our good works, and our praise to God are cleansed by his shed blood and made acceptable to the Lord. We offer sacrifices on an altar. The language of this passage should indeed be understood as Old Testament language describing New Testament realities. And I believe that the Sabbatarian still does that with the Sabbath references. How? Some would ask. Well, hear me out. We still keep a Sabbath. It's just not the Jewish one. It's the Lord's Day. The first day of the week, not the seventh. Just like we have a temple and priesthood and sacrifices and an altar, but not the Jewish ones, we likewise still have a Sabbath day, just not the Jewish one. We celebrate and keep the Lord's Day holy, for it is the Christian Sabbath. This all fits together, and the Sabbatarian can deal with all of the Old Testament language in this passage in a pretty straightforward manner. And a challenge to any non-Sabbatarian arises from this. You know, how are we to understand the language of Sabbath-keeping for, for the New Covenant era if there's not a Sabbath for Christians? How are you supposed to understand that then? The burden of interpretation rests on the one who would deny the Lord's Day to be the Sabbath that Isaiah spoke of in our text. In the interpretation I've set forth today, there is a corresponding New Testament element to every single Old Testament element in this text. But that is not the case with a Sabbath denier. So I put that forward to you. Brothers and sisters, in this passage that describes some of the glory of the new covenant, we are likewise told that its members will continue to keep God's Sabbath day holy. And that means we must do so today. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath for the people of God. Now I'd like for us to return to Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Most of you have seen Braveheart. You're going to be all right. I know this sermon's going long. It's going to be okay. Having seen in Isaiah 56 that there is a Sabbath for Christians to keep during the New Covenant era, we can reasonably conclude that the blessings of keeping the day in Isaiah 58 remain ours for the taking by God's grace. We just need to interpret them in light of the New Covenant. So hear me out. The earthly promises given under the Old Covenant foreshadow spiritual realities and promises for the New Covenant. Basically, everything in the Old Covenant foreshadowed and pointed forward to something about the New Covenant in Christ. So now as we turn to these two verses, we're going to seek to interpret them in light of the New Testament and see what God promises us there. So having informed your mind, I want to now try to get at your heart by showing you how kind and good God is to bless us for keeping his day. Let me read Isaiah 58, 13 and 14 again. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, 
And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. First, we're told that in order to receive the blessings in verse 14, we must keep the day. So briefly, I just want to hit this with you. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, what does that mean? If you don't trample down God's holy day, we must consider how we're walking on the Sabbath day. That is how we're living, how we're using it. We must regard the day as holy, as a day given for the purpose of worship. We must give the whole of the day over to God's purposes. And that's why we're told that we must not be going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly on that day. Not doing your own pleasure means that you don't, a modern way of saying it, you don't do your own thing on the Sabbath day. You don't do your own pleasure. We're not to engage in the things that we would ordinarily do on other days, even if they're not intrinsically sinful. Why? Because this day's different. Because, because rather we abstain from our pleasure, our wills, because the day is not for mindless recreation or worldly work. It's for the Lord. And a brief thing here, and I'm getting this from, from a, a book that I've read on this doctrine. God doesn't say this. God doesn't say, you don't do your own pleasure on my day. He doesn't say that because he's opposed to pleasure. He doesn't say this because he's some kind of a cosmic killjoy. Far from it. God tells us to lay down lesser pleasures, like football, shopping, idle conversations, video games, mindlessly playing with our phones, doing our ordinary work, making money, laying down those lesser pleasures in order that we might pursue greater and better ones. That's the point of the Sabbath. God has something better for us on the Lord's day than the things we would normally engage in. He has spiritual and eternal blessings to give us. He has his own personal fellowship to give us. And he does not want us to be hindered from those amazing things by pursuing lesser things. He's not a killjoy. He wants you to have the most amount of pleasure possible. So he says, lay down the little things. Let me give you the good stuff. He's good. He's good. Back to the text here. To keep the day, we must call it a delight. We must find it a joy in our hearts, considering it a day for rejoicing, considering it a, day, it a day to look forward to each week. It's the day we get, consider this please, it is the day that we get to spend time with our greatest friend, the lover of our souls. And so we must call it a delight and never consider it a burden. And we must call the day honorable, that is, keeping it holy using it for honorable things like worship and good works. This is what it means to keep the day. But now we turn to the blessings. Verse 14. First, God tells us that if we keep the Sabbath, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Hold on. So if I delight in the Sabbath, I will delight in the Lord? Yes. If we take delight in the day that belongs to God, then God will cause us to delight in him more and more. This makes sense, doesn't it? Like God says that the more we give the day to him, the more we spend time in fellowship with him, reading his word, hearing it preached, worshiping him, praying to him, meditating on him and his works and his goodness toward us, talking about him and what he has done with our brothers and sisters. The more that we do that, he will cause us to love him and delight in him more and more. It seems like almost a natural result of the thing. But it's not. It's actually a blessing. 
We take delight in the Lord's day because we delight in the Lord himself and want to spend time with him. And so catch this. He will meet our delight in him by giving us a greater capacity to delight in him. You only have an eight ounce cup. He says, fill it up and I'll give you a 12 ounce cup. Fill that one up and I'll give you a 16 ounce cup. I promise he has more cups than you can fill. He says, you delight in me, I will continue to give you a greater capacity to delight in me. What a gracious gift. What Christian doesn't want this? What Christian doesn't want to delight in the Lord more? Everyone wants this. And God promises it to the one who uses his day for honorable purposes, calls it holy, and delights in it. Christian, see if he won't do it. Keep his day. See if he won't. I challenge you. You know, he actually tells us to do this sometimes. Like, claim his promise and tell him to keep it. I challenge you, do the same. Second, God promises to make you ride on the heights of the earth. Now, this is a little bit of odd language for us, but this kind of language is found in Habakkuk um, 3.19, Micah 1.3, Amos 4.13, and Deuteronomy 32.13. Uh, and this language of riding or treading, or walking on the heights of the earth seems to mean something of having victory over your enemies, right? Or it has to do with being safe and kept from harm. So taking these things together, I think that God here is promising that those who keep the Sabbath will enjoy victory and safety from their enemies. Now, this must be understood spiritually. I believe the Lord is promising here that he will give us spiritual victory and safety from our enemies. That is, he will make us victorious over sin, Satan, and the world. As we keep his day holy, he will sanctify us, cause us to delight in him, strengthen us, and help us to kill our sin and resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. He will cause us to tread down our foes by faith. He will put us in a safe place that is in his arms so that Satan cannot touch us or cause us to stumble. He will help us to say no to the world and overcome it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will help us to refuse to give an inch to our flesh that we might conquer it and glorify his name. He'll cause us to ride on the heights of the earth. Oh, Christian, he promises you help and growth in holiness as you keep his day. Surely you want this. Surely you want this. Third, God promises to feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. God promises to feed his people with the inheritance, that is the heritage, the inheritance of Jacob. Now, Jacob's inheritance of the land of Canaan was promised by God's covenant with Abraham. And there are many things that could be said about this, but I'm going to try to be very broad with it. God is, broadly speaking, he is saying that those who keep his Sabbaths will be fed with or will enjoy they will feast upon the blessings of his covenant with them. And for us, what is the covenant he has made with us? It is the new covenant. Also, the new covenant is promised indirectly to Jacob in the, in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. That God would one day send the Messiah. God's telling us that those who keep the Sabbath will enjoy the privileges and blessings of his covenant. Christian, God will cause us to feast on the glories that are ours in the new covenant. He'll cause us to glory in and rejoice in what is ours in Christ. 
He'll cause us to experience them on a more personal level. Hear me. The realities that we've been justified in God's sight, have peace with him, have been made his children, will be made more real to us. We'll feed on them. The truth that we have peace with God, that he hears our prayers, that he will preserve, protect, pity, and care for us, will become sweeter to us. Our assurance of salvation will increase. The goodness of his love for us will become more palpable to us. He'll feed us on these things. Have you ever considered, oh, God help us if we don't. These, are, these things are not a list to be memorized, but they are things to be experienced and delighted in. He says, I'll feed you with these things. Who doesn't want that? And you want to know how he ends the promises? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. As my sister used to tell me, you can take that one to the bank. (laughs) Write it down. It's good and it's true. The sovereign Lord has spoken and he will not lie and he will not change his mind. Brothers and sisters, keep the day and be blessed by the Lord. Keep the day and be blessed by the Lord. In closing, I beg you to really consider these things. Don't let them go in one ear and out the other. Wrestle with them. Really, truly consider them. I will not say that your salvation depends upon your Sabbath keeping because that is heresy. Only Christ Jesus can save sinners. You are made right with God only by faith in Him. It is only by His righteousness. On your best day, you cannot offer obedience to God to make yourself right with him I am not saying I'm not teaching legalism up here Christ alone saves faith alone in Christ alone saves but that is not an excuse for us to not think on these things do you not want to obey the Lord do you not want to be blessed by the Lord do you not fear his fatherly discipline Please think on these things. Living a life of gratitude to God is at stake. Pleasing Him is at stake. Receiving blessings from Him is at stake. His discipline is at stake. Consider these things. And one final thing before I end. I want you to remember that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is a kind King. The Lord of the Sabbath is a good Lord. Why am I saying this? Well, we were reminded today that Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Christ is the enlarger of Israel in Isaiah 54. Christ is the bringer of peace in Isaiah 55. And he is the one who gathers Gentiles like us into the people of God in chapter 56. By his grace, we have been saved, made clean, changed, brought into the number of the people of God. He has atoned for our sins, given us his righteousness, and brought us into his household by grace alone. He has been so, so good to us. So then, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because of his goodness and kindness to save sinners like us, let us keep his day holy. In grace upon grace, he promises that if we will only do our duty and obey him, he will bless us even more with himself. Truly, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, is greater, kinder, lovelier, and filled with more mercy and grace than we could have ever imagined. Let us therefore obey and give the day over to the lover and savior of sinners. May God teach us these things. May God put them deep in our hearts that we might love him and obey him in whatever he commands.
Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I know it has been a long sermon, but I know that you are greater than our weak flesh and that you can seal these truths to our hearts. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy. Teach us to keep your day, not out of mere legal duty, but because Jesus Christ has made us your people. Help us to do all that we do for his sake because of what you've done for us in him. Teach us, Lord, obedience for Christ's sake. Amen.